Thank you for joining us for the episode one of the Opinionated Stance podcast. You're with your host here, Patrick Farrar, and I have my esteemed colleague, Steve Hombaker. You may have heard of him. He is the head CEO and product innovator at Vandalay Industries. <laughs> he also is the chairman of the board of Craymerica Industries, and he is also lead uh, foundation representative at the Susan G. Ross Foundation. Uh, Steve, thank you for joining me for this podcast today. Thank you for having me, and I would like to be your latex salesman. <laughs> My latex salesman? Yours, absolutely. God, Not anyone else's. Not I, I'm a one client, man. This is great. You can obviously tell by the topics we were talking about in that brief, brief introduction. We're going to talk Seinfeld today. We're going to talk and see if it relates to this to basically anything it does right now in 2017. Well, I guess we're in 2016 for another week. Yeah, right? we've got a few days left here of uh, good old get good riddance to 2016 here. Let's kick it out the door as soon as we can. Yep. But, uh, yeah, still, Christmas is good and everything like that. So we just got to... 55 degrees today. 50 in, in good old Chicago, Illinois, my, my former home. Former home, just south of the good land. So first question, do you think Seinfeld... The episodes, the series, everything stands the test of time. Like, do you think, personally, I do, but what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm in the same the same boat here on that. I mean, uh, they wouldn't be getting the astronomical sums of money that they get in syndication and then the deal with uh, Hulu and, ever, and everything else if uh, people weren't watching. Um, and I think the reason people watch is because of the applicability and, and they can see themselves in the situations or, or at least know people that have dealt with similar situations that are in the show. So, yeah, I mean, uh, as far as, as that's concerned, absolutely. I mean, there, there are situations just literally every day that I think people bump into where they just think of a Seinfeld reference. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's interesting because it's a show about nothing. They talk briefly about the net and getting on the net, but you don't have <laughs> cell phones. You don't have... Facebook, you don't have MySpace, Friendster. We can go way back into all these like <laughs> archaic social networks. No Zanga. You don't even have like Prodigy, <laughs> like AOL.com. Yeah, you got to get your 40 free hours yeah, of you don't uh, have AOL service. But you have all these like social topics that come up in these ways of communication that I think are just like amazing. It's not necessarily the means of like through the technology or anything. It's, you know, it's the lessons that stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. It's like everybody's going to be in this awkward situation where they're at the health club and somebody sees them pee in the shower. Maybe <laughs> not. I don't know. I can't um, say that I've ever done that. Well, <laughs> they know a friend. Yeah, exactly. I'm Everyone. asking for a friend right here. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're in these situations. So it's like it's the care. Do you think it's more like the story's relatable to, for generations or is it? The characters and the character arcs, because again, there was nothing. It's the whole story is based on character. I think it's a mix of both, uh, because I think that the way, the, especially the way that they wrote with Larry David at the helm of the show, um, I think the situations were kind of um, ubiquitous enough that like everyone could identify with a certain element of them. And then I think too with the characters, I think everyone has a little piece of. Uh, each character in them at one point or another, depending on the... I think the situations bring out some of those elements of the characters, and I think the characters uh, make some of those situations funnier or more applicable. I think it goes. it's a two-way street. Do you think it's because they take it to so far of, like, an absolute extreme of the situation? I mean, you have Kramer, who's batshit crazy across the board, mm -hmm. but do you think it's because he's funny because he takes it to the extreme? Or he points out what we're all thinking about in these situations in more of a 
kind of like a like in that episode where the lady had the head, the haircut, the mm-hmm. old, old, old haircut. Just put him in the room. He's, he's going to take and say it. <laughs> like, we've all been in that room where it's like, God, Becky has the worst haircut. Sorry, Becky. Ed. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Is it those situations that get exemplified? Or, like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, it's difficult to, like, narrow down, um, which I think kind of speaks to um, kind of the genius of the show a little bit. Uh, but... Uh, I think that, jeez, uh, I don't know precisely how to put it, but, uh, I mean, going back to my previous point, I just think it's, um, they did such a good job of, like, picking these little elements and, yeah, like you said, kind of uh, pushing them to the extreme where uh, you can see yourself, like, taking those steps that they take as well. And I think personally identifying with little elements of it. Not, obviously, not a lot of people are going to behave in the manner which Kramer does uh, or, or Jerry or anyone else where they just like literally just take the, the smallest, most inane thing and literally have it dictate their, their entire path of action and thoughts for days or weeks on end. Uh, but I think you, they, there's a lot of identification with uh, uh, just how those characters decide to uh, analyze things and then uh, just go all out and continuing to analyze and overthink each one of these things yeah, that, I think, that occur. I think we're guilty of it, like in our personal lives of maybe not going, like like you said, not going to be like 100% full on Kramer, but there's Kramer moments that we have. There's Jerry moments that mm-hmm. we have. So like what characters can you relate to the most? Like what, if you had to take and, take and make a, like, I don't know, like a diagram of you of, based upon Seinfeld characters, who would it be? Like, what would it be? Like, I got mine right now. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I mean, I'm, I definitely lean Jerry, um, just from the, uh, I don't know. I kind of see a lot of parallels between like the way I analyze things and the way he analyzes things. Um, and I don't tend to react on every level of it, but when I get very, like when there's something that pushes me, to that point, I go full bore like he does, and uh, you know, eat the peas one by one, but scoop the niblets. And, and little things, like so little vexing. tiny things, like that. Exactly. So not like Kramer blatantly obvious things, but like I'm a very observant person, so I get his humor and his style of thought. Where I'm like oh, little crap like that, where you know, yeah, like oh, she scooped the niblets. <laughs> you know, so it, vexing. So <laughs> that's what made this so vexing. Uh, yeah, so that's I definitely identify more with, more with Jerry, uh, and then I would say secondarily I probably go George, uh, just from I can be uh, as neurotic as, as George at certain points in time, uh, and uh, I mean I think his character is is more secondary to Jerry. You know, yeah, in my, in my in my if I was to pattern my uh, so called uh, uh, Seinfeld existence, that that's where I would start. Absolutely, with. I mean I think that it if you do. If you think that you're not a little bit of George, we all have a little mm-hmm. bit of George in us uh, because it's like that neurotic, like always worrying about what people think and stuff. And we get hot headed and stuff like that. If I had to pattern mine for me, it's got to be it's got to be primarily Kramer slash George. Like, I don't <laughs> know if it's a 50 50 or yeah. whatnot, but what just, would you say your percentage would be? Um, I don't know. 
It would probably be probably more Kramer, maybe, maybe like a 70-30 okay. or like maybe a 60-40. Like just the free spirit. You got two pints of Kramer in you. Yeah, two pints of Kramer in you, buddy. <laughs> giddy up. Like giddy up, like all that stuff. How about that? I got rope. It's like the sarcastic comments mm-hmm. that are just amazing. And if you watch any of like the background stuff about Michael Richards when he was taking and filming it, he was one of the people that was the most straight on set. Oh, yeah. He's a very polished, like... Uh, as far as like that group, I mean, he was the most polished of the actors, right? Um, which is kind of surprising, like given his character, you realize like he's just a goof, and he's like very like he is on cue with all of his lines and everything like that, and he can ad lib better than all of the rest. Like when the when they break a scene or whatever, and he like he just keeps rolling with it, and yeah. they are you know you have Jerry and and. Uh, um, uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus just losing it in the corner, you know, just flat out can't can't function, and he's, and he's just, just sitting there rolling. <laughs> he's just like, okay, we got two more cameras left. It's not yours. We're not gonna have to reshoot yeah. this. But like, he was just the quintessential. It just shows like, but the character itself, he ch- he tried to help. Like, if you look at like the subplot of him in general, he's always there to try to help somebody out, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that I try to think. It's like, okay, I'm gonna try to help it out. The ideas may be batshit crazy, and I might not ever <laughs> execute out to be the right things, but it's like always trying to help somebody out. And I mean, just like you can see it in the like the episode where uh, George is having lunch with Steinbrenner, and he's got like Kramer's on this whole kick of like getting warm clothes, so he's putting it yeah. all in the ovens <laughs> and stuff like that. And he goes to get the calzone. Uh, what is it? Eggplant calzone? Yeah, mm, eggplant calzone. <laughs> We're gonna have lunch, and it's like paying in like quarters and stuff but that was all because he was trying to help newman and george out like right like the whole existence of kramer is helping people out look at that i got rope that episode <laughs> was great like all the alter egos of dr van nostrin or he punch or <laughs> penny packer where wealthy industrialists gonna buy an amusement park oh no i'm gonna buy a coal mine or something a like silver that. mine i think <laughs> yeah like where he fakes all these things out to help people like it's done I think in a loving way. Like, yeah, it can come off as blunt and he can come off as a goof or an idiot, but I think that's what great writing is. Yeah, I mean, I think it, he sums it up at one point, too. You know, I think, I forgot the episode title, but it's, you know, sometimes I like to help the humans. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes the pods. You're a like, pod. Yeah, <laughs> you're a pod. You haven't left the building in 40 years <laughs> or something like that. Oh. Marriage? It's a trap. <laughs> it's a man-made prison. I'm glad we had this up. That's where you have to talk about your day. Yeah. How did your day go? How did your day go? Oh, that's great. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's definitely Kramer um, because it's eccentric. It's, to be honest, it's fun to be a Kramer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we all have a little bit of George, like the neurotic nature. But like, could you imagine what it would be like if George was trying to date these women? Like when, remember how he had, uh, normally I get tuna on toast mm-hmm. and then I'm going to do this and do all the opposite. Do you imagine what he would be like in like a current, like online dating, like match.com oh, <laughs> like situation or like him swiping on Tinder? Yeah. He would either go and I mean, I think they, some in the opposite episode where he would either have to pick what, what persona I feel like he would have different personas on different platforms. So like on one, he might have, you know the the blatantly obvious one that he goes with on the uh, the opposite, where he you know tells everyone that he's unemployed and <laughs> lives with his parents and all that. But I think on the on others he might just you know who knows he might go uh, uh, with uh, Art Vandelay or the or the architect or who you know whatever persona the, the marine, marine biologist, biologist whatever Wait, he decides to go with at the at the <laughs> at the point in time at which 
uh, you know, the thought strikes him, which he's uh, he's not necessarily uh, impulsive like Kramer, I think, but uh, he definitely has some harebrained schemes of his own, which, I mean, I love Kramer for some of, like, his business ideas. Uh, I mean, I... Bladder system and I can definitely oil spills? I can identify with some of that because I think of even just random crap that we talk about. Uh, I think it's... I just think Kramer when we come up with a stupid business idea. Uh, but George has some of those, like, more social impulses where he thinks oh this is a great idea let me run with this and then he just kind of sees the results and obviously sometimes he's successful but more often than not it's a disaster yeah i was watching a couple episodes uh especially because it's the holiday season i was watching the festivus episode where he makes the donations for everybody in the human fund and that's (laughs) one of the great ones uh god i can't a couple days ago i was watching the one where he uh where george tries to mix food and pleasure Oh yeah, like where he's the pastrami like, sandwich, pastrami sandwich in bed. And he's like, yeah, it's like nine and a half weeks, or maybe it was ghost. I don't know. He starts going to town on that. Like I don't know. I I think those things. It'll be interesting to see what that could be like in like the the modern day dating world because they all had problems. Oh yeah, like I don't know who would taken be the best on there. Probably Kramer. He'd probably be able to be like, yeah, whatever, like roll with any situation on a dating platform. I mean, Elaine would probably be the most successful, uh, just given the fact that, I mean, not to, it's not a sexist take or anything like that, but I mean, she was fairly successful and everything. And she's an attractive lady, like in New York, I'm sure but she George would. is a competition winner. He is a master <laughs> of fair. his domain. He does. Uh, and he'll fight dirty. He'll fight um, dirty. But, uh, yeah, no, I feel like Elaine would probably be the most successful of the group just uh, based on her attributes. Uh, I mean, and she, I love Elaine's character. Like, she jumps in and, like, can hang hang around her own with the guys. Like, and she has no problem just being the way she is. Like, she's very comfortable with who she is as a person. And I think that's why she her character translated so well and had so much love on the show is uh, she was right there with them in terms of, like, some of the craziness. But she definitely uh, could be the voice of reason at, uh, um, you know, as an alternative to Jerry, whereas Jerry would have, you know, sort of sarcastic remarks about in trying to level things out where Elaine would just see like the blatantly obvious one. You know, like it makes me think of like when George is wearing the toupee <laughs> and, and he's hey. talking, you're bald. <laughs> no, I was bald. <laughs> I got dumped by a bald woman. <laughs> and he, you know, and she's the one, you know, grabs and tries to throw it out the window. And then, like, I, I definitely love that about her character uh, in the, in the show is like a very uh, level headed character. I mean, has the, has the occasional uh, uh, impulsive moments, but uh, by and large, uh, she's a, uh, a good balance to the rest of the characters. Yeah. Speaking of characters, like obviously this show was character based. We have our main four. Then we go into like the extended characters, like the families, like, you know, mm-hmm. George's father, mother, <laughs> parents, like this is everything like that. Extended characters even beyond that where there's like three or four rings of like direct characters that have come all come back in the final, ep- the finale episodes sure. because they want to take and obviously show the characters like Jerry, George, Elaine, Kramer's like perspective as like what they are um, as they were written to be horrible, horrible people. What is your favorite extended character like you know you can go with the easy one being like the soup soup nazi or you can go babu or anything like that i I, I do love babu um (laughs) that that's one of my episodes one of my favorite episodes the the dream cafe and george with the uh the iq test 
Uh, I like Newman. Uh, Newman's one of my uh, one of my favorites, and I particularly love any episode where Kramer and Newman are scheming something. Yeah. Um, I mean, more obscure. Uh, man, um, Kenny Banya is always funny. Um, and just and Mendy's, Mendy's. and is then the suit. I got this like this uh, number for this girl named Uma <laughs> Kramer. Your fancy boy. Uh, hand cream. Smudge the number. I want my suit back. <laughs> Um, and then let's see. Beyond that, um, I liked. Uh, what I'm trying to think of the season of, of when it's in. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't remember right off the top of my head of the character. It's James Spader's character. Um, is that the bagel oh, shop? No, no, that's the no, one that's where the Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, I, I love James Spader. Yeah, um, so I, I love that uh, that character. I mean, that's real minor, but uh, still, it was a favorite of mine. It's minor, but that was a that's an interesting episode. That's a that's a distinct pull because it's one where George goes into Anger's Anonymous, and then Elaine goes into another Anonymous. Like they all go into these like. They're living their normal lives, not thinking they have problems or anything like this. James Spader's character comes in. He's going through Alcoholics Anonymous, goes through all the steps, skips Jer- or skips George, mm-hmm. um, and then comes through. And then through that, you see this new arc of like they're all going to like these help groups and stuff <laughs> like that. It's great. And then I and I thought of another one, uh, not a big character by any means, but I love that Patton Oswalt was the uh, TV store. Uh, <laughs> the or not the TV store, the video store. Carrot Top was one of them. Oh too. yeah, yeah. Like, like a young Carrot Top. It's just interesting how many of the other comedians mm-hmm. and stuff were there. Like for me, I've got to say the parents were probably some of my favorite characters. Like Frank Costanza. Let's just let's just yeah. Serenity now, <laughs> Hoochie Mama. Whatever you want to do, Frank Costanza is the greatest character. I think he was written well. Early George's dad was someone else, right? I believe it was the same guy who was uh, Clark's father yes. in uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Yes. But it just didn't seem like in some of the Hulu and some of the DVD stuff, I think they're showing him as doing like the one with the parking garage mm-hmm. where the handicapped spot. Yes. Um, that's the one where I just like I know the night and day difference when you see uh, uh, Jerry Stiller as mm-hmm. Frank Costanza. It is just by uh, the funniest stuff in the world. He's such an amazing force. Um and Estelle, like she is great. Like they complement each other well. And we all know that people that have had parents like that, we may have parents like that. Like you've seen yeah. that dynamic around, but it's like everything around the parents is great. Where Jerry's trying to get like the buffer zone and George gets the buffer zone. It's like, oh. They do a good job with George's parent. Like I think that change was crucial for the series for to show why George is the way he is. Yeah. Like to have his parents be uh, with Jerry Stiller, uh, you know, his, as his father, and then I, f- I forget the what, is it Doris? I, f- I forgot who who played the, the actress that played his mom. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, whatever that like they're just constant screaming and back and forth bickering and nonsense. Uh, really did a great job to show like how George became the way he was, and they allude to that a lot um, in the show. And then I think the same way with Jerry's parents to uh just just constant back and forth nonsensical uh observational stuff that both his parents do like i think definitely plays a, a big part in the way he came up through the show yeah estelle harris is uh, estelle harris estelle yes Cassanza. like i think the most interesting 
Like a good thing to look at, like George's characters is they wrote a lot of pieces for Frank once it, Jerry Stiller came in. Mm-hmm. He was a main, uh, main role in there. Like there's stuff where it's like, oh, they're going to go through like a Bible trinket trinket salesman <laughs> speaking <laughs> Korean. Like like this is stuff where you get him outside of like the back supporting actor role into more of the ensemble, which just helps. I think that was a great like like you said, it was a great move for the series to take and see like the idiosyncrasies that he has who collects tv guides really yeah al roca tv guides (laughs) and the uh um i think the acting like the choice of the actor too like they needed somebody that was that could play frank the way that they needed to because like the way they had it set up you need a diva and he's a great actor and they had like the episode of the parking garage where they do the wheelchair thing like george's dad you know frank's getting honored for uh, you know all of his service work, and then you think about like how Jerry Stiller portrayed Frank Costanza. It's like that he would never volunteer for anybody, yeah. like <laughs> unless it had some sort of personal gain right. for him. So uh, like that that difference was very uh, noticeable. Yeah, I think he's great. So alter egos. What is your favorite alter ego in the whole thing? Oh, um, I, I'm a Penny Packer man. You're a Penny Packer I like man. Penny Packer. Um, that that's probably number one for me overall. Yeah. Like Kramer's portrayal of all the alter egos is great. Art Vandelay is obviously good. Art Corvalet. Corvalet. <laughs> Corvalet. Yeah. Vandelay. What am I? I'm a Marine, but oh God, that's so good. Like the alter egos are great. Like, I mean, I think with they play an extension of the character base that you needed in that show because, you know, like the stuff that, what was it, Dr. Van Nostrand or mm-hmm. uh, trained Juilliard dermatologist? Like, <laughs> Are you serious? He's got a meat slicer and he's looking at <laughs> moles of his boss. What, are you cooking up a little something for this guy? Ah, we could get him to do a cancer screening. I can snap a photo of a bare-chested Kruger. It's like, <laughs> oh, are you cooking up a little something for him? I don't know. I think it was great because that's what made the, I think, a lot more people be able to come into the show mm-hmm. like afterwards. Like, oh, this is a funny character. It's not Kramer. It's not this. It's this other guy. It's this all, like It's just so off the board yeah it's a good gimmick uh for sure and it's great that the way they wrote it uh they wrote it back into the show for future purposes so it could always be a joke to previous episodes or previous seasons cosmo kramer yeah cosmo (laughs) name's cosmo so i'm gonna ask you the million dollar question okay what's your favorite episode oh boy Um, and you can you can list out a bunch of them because i think i did i did a fair amount of thinking on this when we talked about it uh so i went um, I like the uh, Cadillac part, part one and two. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's that would be top top of my. Uh, Is that my where list. Jerry buys the Cadillac? Yeah, takes the, it down. the Cadillac down to Florida. Um, they have to. He has Morty has to resign from the board because they think that he's channeling funds to buy <laughs> yeah. his Cadillac. He gets impeached. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he does the whole uh, Nixon thing at the end of the episode with the yeah the the peace signs and everything. Fingers. Uh, I absolutely love that episode. That episodes because it's two parts. Um, and then uh, the number uh, so a close close second would be the Summer of George. Summer of George is great. What uh, are you gonna do? Eat a block of cheese? <laughs> are you decompressing? decomposing yeah i mean there's a lot of like parallels in in that in my life where it's like oh i have this free time man what am i gonna do with it and i end up you know i had it just hit shit it just happened this uh uh friday like i had the day off i went out on thursday to a christmas party 
Friday, woke up, was like, all right, I don't have anything to do. I got the whole day to myself. Let's make something of it. And then I wound up you know, going to get lunch with a buddy and then just sat around the rest of the night and didn't watch TV. It yeah. was like, but it was very relaxing, but I didn't accomplish any of the things where it's like, oh, yeah, seize the day. You got this free time and not, you know, no obligations. And I didn't make anything of it. It's the same way George is. And then, and plus, I want a refrigerator in my uh, recliner. <laughs> at, some, at some point in my life, I'm going to make that happen. That's awesome. Like, I don't know. I could go back. Like, for me, the, the show obviously is very episodic. It goes between a lot more polished stuff afterwards. Like, I could have taken and put probably two different shows episodes in here. Um, one being a close second would obviously be uh, the Chinese food restaurant. Mm-hmm. Just because what that did for TV, not just like the content of the episode. The episode itself is hilarious. Like, oh, I'll give you 20 bucks to go over and blow your face into <laughs> people's <laughs> soup. soup. Like, that is absolutely great. But it's like they're sitting there. They're hungry. All 30 minutes or all runtime is in that episode is in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. The network hated it. Like, after doing a bunch of stuff, research on that. Like after the fact, I'm like, wow, this is pretty revolutionary because this showed that they could do whatever they wanted and they would stick to their guns for creative integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great episode, but I have to honestly think like becoming going back to like what I relate to a lot is being a Kramer. And I honestly think that the Millennium episode was probably oh, yeah. the best. That's a great. That's episode. my favorite one, just because of several different ways. Like you have Elaine's character in there who's just trying to get customer service. So she goes and buys these Hirachi shoes and stuff. (laughs) And like the whole like fact that she can't get this woman who's running the store to take and do anything of like get off the phone and help her to buy like what, $30 shoes or something. Yeah. No, I think they were a little bit more, but yeah, regardless, regardless, like, okay, that like, and so she's got a vendetta in that episode (laughs) to take and do whatever it takes there. So she tries to undercut by going to the other (laughs) store and then brings in the famous H E penny packer. (laughs) Kramer, who's going to decide to buy a roller coaster, <laughs> um, eating chips. Ooh, Machu Picchu. Thank you very <laughs> are much. Are these free? Are these free? <laughs> I need to see some unmentionables. Someone thinks some of those clothes are women's. Oh, not a problem. <laughs> like you have that part of the episode, which is great. But then you also have Kramer as the main focus as that episode for planning the New Year's party. And these are my everyday balloons. These are my everyday balloons. He gets like 250 chairs, puts it in Jerry's thing. <laughs> but if you look at how they took and worked that the set of that particular episode, they did everything around the the auxiliary storyline. They never sat on the couches. They mm-hmm. always sat on the folding chairs. They always talked and focused on other things outside of the main aspects of Jerry's apartment. And then the fact that like at the end of the day, there's this whole gripe about <laughs> Newman who can't get Elaine to go to the party. <laughs> And then at the end, Jerry points out that it's the wrong day. Oh, God, I love that. That, like, that reaction is one of my favorite moments in the show, is, yeah. is, is Newman freaking out about that after Jerry sticks it to him. I gotta, he's got to jump on the invoice, but I got this and this and this. I got a bunch of ice. What type of ice? Cubed. That's, That's good stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, that for me is like, it's one of the greatest episodes. I think it's funny because it takes and goes back and forth. Like you can tell that Elaine is only in that episode as like that subplot. Mm-hmm. George really isn't much in there, uh, to my knowledge, except for just like adding filler. But that that is definitely a Kramer episode, which yeah. is absolutely great. Like I don't know. So if you would think about this, like, do you think new generations of kids could relate to Seinfeld? Like if they hadn't seen it, like we're obviously on the cusp because we grew up uh, in a generation that the technology shifted. 
we didn't have the internet. We had books. We had all these other mm-hmm. things. I'm not trying to say, oh, back when the day when we had this, but we weren't a connected society. We didn't have everything. Do you think kids that didn't grow up and understand that you took and had a work phone number and house phone number and you left a message yeah. would like, <laughs> like not texting or anything? Do you think they'll understand some of the pieces of the show? Or do you think it's just like it's a time piece that if you're in that era, you understand it and then you can see it, those lessons applicable to modern day society? Or do you think it's going to be? I mean, I think parts of it are dated, but only to a degree. I think they're much more overshadowed based on like most everything is situational. So, uh, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, an episode where you leave a message and you got to go change the tape on a, on a, on a answering machine. That's one thing that's obviously a little dated. Uh, but I think the majority of the other situations are go across changes in technology and, and, uh, you know, changes in social behavior and everything like that. So, uh, yeah, I think kids can, I mean, kids lo- is loose. I mean, I got into the show when I was really young. My I was the firstborn um, in my family, so you know, I was the first son. So I got to watch a lot of the shows that my my parents did, mm-hmm. and they watched Seinfeld. So I mean, there were things that I found legitimately funny when I was like nine years old, eight nine years old, that I had no idea what they actually meant. You know, Me too. like uh, the contest episode. Still funny, but I had you know it was like all right, I I don't understand like what's totally going on here. Well, the funny part is Kramer comes in and slaps fifty bucks on the counter yeah. like immediately. <laughs> I mean, like okay, that's funny regardless because he's like not knowing the subject matter, like right as a young child, so like younger kid. And I think I think a good part of that too is like being a very young uh, person getting into the show. Like Kramer was always funny because he has so much physical comedy in the episodes. And that made a big difference. I think, I think if you, if you asked me when I was 10, who my favorite character or who I identified the most with, I would have probably said Kramer. But, uh, you know, as you get older, you start to understand these social situations better. And then that's where you start to develop like connections with the other characters a little bit more deeply. Uh, yeah, I mean, kids, I don't know if like, I think, I mean, I have a brother who's 10 years younger than me. And I feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm 29, so he's 19, but I feel like if, if I was to go back 10 years and I, and he was only nine, like, I don't think he would identify necessarily. Right. Um, and that, I mean, there's still a lot of changes that have taken place since that point. I think you have to be a little bit older nowadays to kind of appreciate some of the humor that took place, that takes place in the, in the, in the show. So some people can say that the, obviously Larry David is the man, uh, the brainchild behind all of this stuff with Jerry and mm-hmm. all the writing crew. Um, is Curb Your Enthusiasm an extension of Seinfeld or is that a whole, like in your eyes, could a newer generation get into Curb and like the potential new stuff that's coming out from there? Or is it still like it stands the test of time? It's just another piece of Larry David's work. I think that, uh, Seinfeld is more balanced than Curb. Um, Curb is, is hilarious and I, I love it, but it's like every episode is like, hyper uncomfortable like super neurotic because it's all larry david and i mean it definitely has obviously has a different format to a degree you know they they ad lib a, a whole lot of that show um they don't they have very basic uh things sketched out for plot points and they just kind of roll with it uh so i think maybe younger younger generations plus it's a little bit more vulgar uh so i think the hbo versus yeah, network nbc uh so i think that people might catch that a little you know they might hook on to curb a little quicker like people nowadays might but uh you know i think i definitely see uh them as as standalones just because i think there was a little bit more 
uh, balance and other writing influences in Seinfeld uh, that aren't totally there um, in Curb. Yeah. Would you ever think that there would be a... We obviously saw the episode, the final, the finale, where they get locked up. Um, and that's... They play Green Day. Yeah. Good good riddance. Yeah. That's the closing, closing track as they're in there talking about, oh man, like cereal or something like that. Like, can they put on skits in jail and stuff like that? We're probably around the time that they would be getting out of jail if they haven't gotten out already. <laughs> would we ever see like a reboot like they did for Full House on Netflix? They'll, I'm not saying I'm not saying an on Netflix one, but would you ever think that there would be a reboot? Or is they they would never reboot the show? I don't. I could never see that. I mean, the amount of money that they walked away from at the time just to do more seasons was absurd for for TV at the time. I, mean, I can't even imagine what it would be now. And I think they're all comfortable with how they did things. I mean, they did kind of mini reunion stuff on Curb uh, with, with all the characters coming back in different, you know, different points uh, to, you know, pitch a, pitch a reunion, so to speak. But I don't, I could never see that coming to fruition. Uh, I just think that it had its run. It's, there's no need to, to like go back and sully it. Um, there's no need to make the hangover too. No, I mean, I think a, a, a comparable, uh, not totally comparable. I mean, I love Arrested Development and the first, three seasons of that show are positively brilliant. Like some of the best writing of any show I've ever watched. Um, and they made a fourth season and I liked the fourth season. A lot of people did not. Um, but that you could tell the difference just because they were trying to cater to everybody's schedule. So they had to film things like out of sequence. All of the episodes are focusing on one character at a time. I mean, the, the other people come in and out, but like it's all the plot points are all about what each character was doing between the end of the original run and what, you know, where they are at present. Yeah. And I don't think it, I mean, it's nowhere near as good as the first, as the first three. And like, I would hate to see them go and like try and make another season or two out of it and just have it be less than stellar. I mean, they were so successful. I mean, I think that's a mark of a great show is like they lost Larry David. He left, I think after seven, was it? Um, or maybe in seven, maybe. I, regardless. Yeah. But I mean, they went on a couple extra years without one of their main influences and writers and everything and producers. I mean, they put out some of the greatest episodes. All, like exactly. The, the timeless episodes there, the and, ones that people remember. Yeah. A lot. And so it's like they had the team and everything, just the way it all came together. Uh, like you don't want to mess with that. But Larry leaving doesn't mean that the episodes are bad. Like you have no, like, exactly. you set a framework up and you know, you just go with that. And, but they, I mean, they had more, uh, they had different writing and different, uh, you know, it was a little bit less, uh, you could just, you, the feel of the shows, you could definitely see the, that they weren't as heavy on like Larry David's style of comedy. Yeah. I think for me, when I saw like episode, like maybe it's season five, like after Kramer comes back, from California. Mm-hmm. Like you could definitely see a distinct shift in more of a less like global narrative arc into more show episodic based mm-hmm. narratives. You had like things like you had bits that would go across multiple things, but you never really had two part episodes. You had rarely had two part episodes. Everything would resolve by its own volition mm-hmm. by that. Um, resolve of its own momentum. Own, own momentum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, if we want to put <laughs> stalls down to the, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah, I think I definitely think I can see that. Um, there's a distinct point in the early parts of the season, the seasons where you can see a change in their writing styles. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I don't think that we need to see a Seinfeld two or a Seinfeld a Seinfelder house, yeah, or a Fuller house or anything like no, that. No, I don't think it serves anyone really, other than, I mean, it would be like a paycheck movie kind of thing. Yeah, because right? I can't see. It's like the band that goes out on tour when they shouldn't be going out on tour. Yeah, it's like, it's Mo- like Motley Crue going hey, on to one final tour again. Don't and again. make fun of Motley Crue, man. Oh, that's that's a topic for a different day. Yes, that is, but. <laughs> You know, I, I'm going to digress. I'm going to go to a quick thing. I almost had the opportunity to go see Motley Crue and Alice Cooper in Milwaukee. Oh, yes, the good land. Yes, the good land. And I was like, I missed out on that show by like having booked another concert the next night in mm-hmm. Milwaukee, so I couldn't go up two nights in a row. See, I saw Alice Cooper in Milwaukee when he opened for Iron Maiden. God, that's uh, so awesome. So that was like a meta thing just from Wayne's World. And I was just sitting there and making Wayne's World jokes, and no one around me got it. But. In the good land, too. It's <laughs> like, oh, three social smears? <laughs> how do you not understand this? Does this like, guy know how to party or what? God. So like, music is a huge thing for you, obviously, right? Oh, yeah. Like You grew up on music. Like. You obviously play music, you play guitar and all this other mm-hmm. stuff, as do I. Um, we're talking Alice Cooper, Wayne's World and all this stuff. Like, what are some of the biggest like musical influences that you've had in your life? Like Yeah, I like, mean band wise. Like, band wise, there's I mean, there's a ton. Um, I mean, my bread and butter is always going to be uh I mean pretty much anything in the rock genre is my is where my head is at with most music. Um, early on, uh, I mean, I won't list some of the, you know, some of the stuff I listened to when I was in my, my, uh, formative phase, my, yeah, my, my formative years. I may have had Spice Girls when I grew up, but I don't listen to that anymore. Like my first album, uh, which I, it's my first, I guess it was kind of music. Um, I got, it it wasn't music first. It was a comedy album, but I got Adam Sandler's what the hell happened to me, which had some good songs on it comedy wise. Uh, but uh, my first, I'm trying to think, my first actual music album, which, God, the only one I can remember getting, because I mean, I had a lot of tapes. The first tape I ever got was Queen, I believe, live at Wembley. First tape I got, Criss Cross is going to make you jump, jump. <laughs> I got a Sony Walkman from my grandma for Christmas. My brother got one too. And I spent like half a day trying to put my pants on backwards and zip them. <laughs> Like without doing it unsuccessfully, it was hilarious. And then my dad's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Yeah, okay." See, putting your pants on backwards and doing the crisscross thing is great until you have to use the restroom. <laughs> That's not a good idea. You need modified uh, pants yeah. for that. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, the first tape I got was definitely—I think it was Queen live at Wembley. It was definitely Queen. I just don't remember what live show it was. Okay. And because I loved Wayne's World as a as a child, so. Uh, you know, that was, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody and that just, you know, set that off. So I got it. I got to tell you, I think, sadly, I think the first actual CD I got was Astro Lounge by Smash Mouth. Why uh, is that sadly? Well, it's sad from a musical Burner, standpoint, Burner. knowing where I am now with the, the way that, you know, I, I consume music. It's like, God damn it. Why, like, why did that have to be it? But I mean, I also think, and I have two friends who claim they never owned it, which I think is just preposterous because I'm pretty sure they just, that was, you know, like when you have to register for the draft, uh, you get, usually you get a, like a razor in the mail because, sure. you know, the whatever company knows that, uh, you know, you've hit that age. I think that like at age ten or eleven, they just sent you Smash Mouth Astro Lounge. Yeah, that or like Lincoln Park Hybrid Theory. Like, yeah, that, like, I mean that was a little later for me because uh, that came obviously. out. I was in seventh, sixth or seventh grade, I think, for that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so 
influence band wise, um, I have always been in in uh, you know genre of rock. Uh, I think you know first first big one would have been Queen. Um, I got into uh, Hendrix fairly early. I, I was fortunate, you know, my my mom and my dad listened to a lot of the same music. Um, so I got uh, Eric Clapton very early, uh, which you know you could do a lot worse than that. Yeah, I mean, um, we could take the obvious blanket off the table and say like we. You and I are both Beatles fans. Absolutely. Although I got into the Beatles a little bit later. Like I did not get into Beatles like before I was in high school. Really? Um, yeah. It was. I mean, by th- at that point though, they weren't really played on the radio all that often. Interesting. You might hear "Come Together." Uh, you might hear, uh, you know, uh, but they didn't play a lot of like the early poppier stuff on the radio any longer. At least on the stations I listened okay. to. Okay. Um, so because I remember growing up. Um, we would take him. My dad would play basketball every Sunday morning with a group of friends that he had through high school. And we'd drive there in the car in the winter. It was freezing all the time. But we would listen to, uh, was it KZOK's Breakfast with the Beatles? Yeah. So and I think they they also ran one on XRT here in Chicago. They switched they, it from KZOK okay. to like XRT. Yeah. And so Breakfast with the Beatles was like the syndicated. And I remember every Sunday, like it was a ritual. We'd listen to it mm-hmm. driving there and it would be on coming back. And then we'd go home, watch the Bears games. And it would be great because the Bears would lose, but we'd have fun. Like it was something that I remember as a child. And it was like one of the songs that got me hooked into music. And we, we could take this off of the table for any like influences or anything because we don't all know the Beatles, but it was the end mm-hmm. when you hear that guitar solo and then you hear that drum solo by Ringo. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my gosh, Ringo. Ringo wrote a song. Ringo wrote a song. <laughs> We're going to put it, this up on the refrigerator. It was the greatest drum solo I've ever heard. Like, And so that was like, okay, consistently every week for a long period of time in the formative years, like hearing that along with hearing like all the stuff like Q101 in the 90s. Yeah, it was great. It was a huge, huge influence for me, like music-wise. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel that, like, I could say that I wish I was either born in the 60s in England listening to, like, the Yardbirds, mm-hmm. Cream, like, in that movement, or if I wish I could be a little bit older in Chicago during the mid-90s, yeah. like, listening to the Smashing Pumpkins at the Metro. Like, for me, like, one of, like, if you say Chicago, 90s rock, you say Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, That's... absolutely. Um, and I, I was big on Smashing Pumpkins. Q101 was back, so yeah, like in the late 90s, and then they, they had a, like a format change in the early 2000s, and yeah. they were off the air, then they came back on. I don't necessarily care for a lot of what they do now. Um, I mean, they play some decent stuff, but I remember in the, in the late 90s staying up for Top 9 at 9. Top 9 at 9. Oh, man. Every, and I was so bent out of shape when I, mean, I fell in love with The Offspring because of Q101. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that was another one of my, my very early musical influences. Um, and so Why Don't You Get a Job and you know, the whole Americana album. Um, and the, yeah, but I think it was when Pretty Fly for a White Guy finally fell off the the top. The, it, it had a crazy it been run, ninety seven or something like that. It's something like that, and it had a crazy run at the like of weeks and weeks at the as number one on top nine at nine. And then I forgot what un, unseated it, but uh, I know Limp Biscuit got their due with you know the recently deceased uh, you know George Michael and their cover of uh, Faith. Uh, they did. They did a fair amount of uh, top nine at nine uh, coverage. So. Well, yeah, they Limp Bizkit got a huge, huge push from TRL, like the MTV. Yeah. Like that was a big thing from them, and like so, like 
you had to be okay radio format adult contemporary music rock i have to play this it's not like it's a bad thing it's just like oh george michael and limp biscuit interesting (laughs) like for me like the big thing was like when the smashing pumpkins were on and they started playing a lot of melancholy melancholy new infinite sadness Mm -hmm. is one of the best albums ever Oh, it's literally on my top list here. Okay. Um, we'll go over top lists in a little bit, but like that album, I listened to Zero while putting together a um, 3D puzzle of the U.S. Capitol building in mm-hmm. my house in Arlington Heights. It was great. Like, <laughs> like you know those 3D puzzles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my dad got me like the hard, hard one. Okay. I was like, oh, this will keep him busy for a little bit. <laughs> and I couldn't put the dome together. So I got about like three quarters of the way done with it and like it started not going there. So I took it like a Godzilla thing I had and okay. just started just <laughs> like just taking the Capitol building off there. But I would listen to Zero um, on repeat just while playing it. It was just like the the pulsing. It was just an amazing thing. And it's like they played Pearl Jam. Like I got exposed to Pearl Jam. I got exposed to more Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. Played a little bit of the punk. But the Offspring, yeah, like... That first album is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I got big into. I was pretty much into into the Offspring for for a pretty long time. I mean, a lot of people think that. I mean, they get a lot of flack in like punk circles for kind of being, I guess, sellouts or just having lame songs. But I mean, personally, I think that they're like a lot. Anything from like '95 to like 2005, the Offspring was. I mean, it was excellent. I mean, you. I'm had not this- gonna. I don't have to. I don't care about their punk credo or anything like that. I mean, they wrote some goofy songs. They have some, you know, pretty heavy songs. They've got songs that are right in the middle. Uh, I don't know. I think I thought that a lot of their albums were excellent. I mean, you could make that same argument for bands that are critically acclaimed across the world, like mm-hmm. Bl- Blink. Blink One Eighty Two is obviously a band that does a lot of punk stuff. Like early on, they do a lot of commercialized stuff. Yeah, and you know, they've got a song on their newest album that's like fourteen seconds about building a pool like it's like what okay i think that's the content of the of the song there we'll, we'll just go with that as the actual thing it's like the uh another thing with uh um i guess like the the sellout vibe is like do, does it really matter like i would rather see a band i mean sell out like if you go full blown and are just dog shit as far as your music that's one thing but like a lot of times the the sellout stuff is like just a slight change or a deviation from their like musical their previous musical path and right. it's like I would rather see a band creating and innovating their sound rather than making the same album over and over again for 10 or 15 years. Well, I mean, there's a band that I know that you like that got that sellout tag pretty early because mm-hmm. they cut their hair. Yeah. Metallica, <laughs> like explain to me what you think about that cuz I mean I I wasn't there in the '80s when it was all like "Kill 'Em All" no, and nor "Justice was I. for All," but like those records, I think are parts that can be like showing the discography as like this is a band that knows how to make songs. Their songs are more orchestral in terms of like their pieces, their movements. They're seven-minute-long songs. Mm-hmm. Each Metallica song starts with a minute and twenty of straight <laughs> like introduction. You yeah. know that you're gonna get a time to go get a beer in a Metallica <laughs> intro, which is like that. That wasn't the case with "Kill 'Em All." I mean, there's some of that, but it was right. definitely like. Kill 'em All was very like you know the thrash and punk movements were very closely aligned as far as music, so uh, they were uh, you know you would just get in and get out kind of thing. I mean they had some longer songs right. in comparison to like a punk song. You know a lot of popular punk songs are you know two and a half to three and a half minutes, and you know they were a little bit longer than that. 
um, basically because I think they were more proficient musicians, so they could throw a solo in there and a bridge and, and they actually, you know, execute it. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the big thing with Metallica is when Cliff Burton died, he was the only one in the band that understood musical theory. So like that's where a lot of their um, longer, more... Uh, Orchestral, orchestral pieces came into play, more composed right. pieces. Um, they were they were definitely, I mean, he was the, the driver behind all that. Right. And they continued that to, you know, through And Justice for All, which is one, I love that album. Um, People can argue that Load and Reload were the days that they sold out when they sold Well, yeah, the, so getting and, to that point, like they really more so sold out, I think, you could see that where they were going when they put out the Black Album. And a lot of people think the Black Album is the best thing in the world. The Black Album it is, is a good Metallica album. It is a very good album. But it's album. not better than Master of Puppets. Right. From a, it, it crosses genres. Like that's, their, yes. that's where they started to go from being a metal band, I think, to more of a... Mainstream hard rock. Hard rock band. Exactly. So they went... Uh, and had some shorter songs. They definitely still, you know, ripped out solos. I mean, they had excellent. I, mean, I thought that's when James's voice sounded the best. I thought it had a tremendous production on it. I think that's probably Bob Rock's last work that was worth a damn because he's a. He, I've seen what he's done to the Offspring. Like, and it's nothing else matters, and The Unforgiven are two of the best tracks off that album. Very good, very good songs. And then, yeah, I mean, absolutely load and really. But you, you also have to factor like they were going through a lot of. I mean, James Hetfield has had plenty of, you know, uh, abuse issues with with drugs and alcohol and, and God knows probably what else. I mean, just psychological issues. Uh, I mean, he's he's definitely recovered uh, from a lot of that, um, which is good for him. But you could definitely tell like that there were a lot of internal struggles uh, in that in that time frame between what was uh, was it 90 or 91 when the Black Album came out. So and I think Load was like 96 maybe 97 in that Load, time. Load, I think, was 95. 95 maybe, was yeah. Like, they were right in each other's Yeah, like, so, wheelhouse. I mean, there was a lot of stuff happening. I mean, they went on huge tours off the Black Album, and it's like, you, as a well, creative I mean, person, you burn yourself out, you got to change things up, and they changed things up, and it made it just didn't look good. When, from, when, from, like, what their base was expecting. They got so big that it looked like they were betraying their base, essentially. When did the... Incident in Montreal happened. Was that on the Black Albums tour? Or when was that were you talking about the pyrotechnic? When, yeah, I that was on. The, I believe the tour for the Black Album. Yeah, I mean, even if you, anybody that comes back from that, like, oh yeah, more power to you. Like Absolutely. that's amazing. Like battling life, life and death, mm -hmm. like being torched by pyrotechnics. That's oh yeah, insane. that's nuts. Um, but I mean, and then the, obviously everyone knows the saga of like the Napster thing, and then you get into like they just make a, they have even more issues from a personal level and a band level they go and make saint anger which is just a i mean a, a dreadful piece of music it's the worst worst music production i've ever heard in my life and i know that they were trying to do that but it just is just terrible and you could see yeah, they were at a very fine point where like that band could have been over at that point and like i'm so thankful that they didn't go out like a lot of people uh you know don't like their stuff post you know you know, 1987 or whatever, and that, that's your prerogative. But, like, I, I genuinely appreciate the fact that they've, like, they went there, they got that out of their system because their past two albums, while they're not up to par with, uh, with you know, their early stuff, I mean, it's never going to be as epic as some of the stuff they did on uh, Ride the Lightning or right. uh, Master Post. But it's still serviceable. Their new album, I, I genuinely like their new album, and I was 
I, you know, I went in, I go in with, you know, this kind of cautious air of like, all right, I need to make sure that, uh, you know, I don't overly promote it. But I mean, there's a couple songs on there where I was like, damn, like that, that you can see pieces of their eras incorporated into like each song, which is kind of cool. Like you can Do definitely they... see elements where it's like, all right, that's from Master Puppets. And then they, on this verse, it sounds like the Black Album. And this part has a load feel to it. Like it's kind of cool to see that, that they've come that far where you can pick elements of each album in stuff that they're writing at present time. Did Rick Rubin do the production work on this one? I don't I think he so. Did a couple I think they them. may have self-produced this one. Okay. Uh, Rick Rubin did the last album, yeah, um, which was Death Magnetic, Yeah. Um, which he did, obviously, did a better job on it than they had with uh, St. Anger, but uh, some of the guitar tone on uh, Death Magnetic didn't do a lot for me, uh, but they started getting back into their, like, their songwriting got better from, you know, from... The, where it was, I mean, they got back into longer songs, not trying to force stuff, right. um, and 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 things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, Metallica, a lot of people, yeah, they, a lot of people will still to this day like they'll be like, oh, I'm not listening to that. They've sold out, blah blah blah. But it's like they they're musicians, like they have to, you have to evolve, or you're going to. You can't like, you can't just be that band that makes the same album every time because you you just burn you yourself won't be out. A band anymore. Yeah, support the arts, support your musicians, buy their records. I'm not saying that you can't be critical of it by all means. If you think it sucks and you don't like it, don't listen to it. Um, right. But you know that. But every, I mean, that's the the beautiful thing about art is that you know everyone's got a different take on it. Um, but to like sit there and say I want them to make you know Master of Puppets every three years for the next 20 or 30 years it's just like come on don't you want to hear something different don't right. you want to hear them try and push the limits of what they do and what they know is otherwise all right cool like i can just listen to the same album all the time yeah i think one of the bands that's trying to do that for me that you can see is been like historically is the red hot chili peppers mm -hmm. like they you know again i'm not trying to push out rick rubin's records or on here or anything like that but they're a band that evolves and evolves and evolves yeah. like you had Stadium Arcadium, which evolved from, uh, gosh, what came before that? Um, um, was it just straight Californication? Californication, Californication is yeah. obviously one of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah. It doesn't break the top five because it doesn't break the top five of what influenced me to play music. Right. I was already definitely down the path to do that, but Californication, like Scar Tissue, mm -hmm. uh, Across the Universe, like just some of the tracks that were absolutely on that track were amazing. John Frusciante was I think he was clean at that time. I think he had just gotten like back because he, obviously he was out of the band for a while. And I think that was part of uh, when they convinced him to come back and he was clean and everything. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, he's, I, I love his guitar playing. I love his songwriting. Um, that's a part of the reason why I'm not big on their newer stuff that they've he's done. he's not in the band anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's just not, it's different. It certainly is. And I like elements of it. I just think it's not as strong as it used to be. So like their like their latest single, I forgot what the title of it was. It wasn't bad. Like I, I it had a, a nice like funky bass line. Right, which is um, traditional pepper. I mean, the guitar work different, but you know, it was still appreciable. Like I I thought it was a decent song. I didn't think their the album with Rain Dance Maggie on it was very mm -hmm. good. Um I I listened to that whole thing and I was just like, ah. I mean, you could tell that they were in a transition period, but sure. again, I'd rather see them try and do something different than, all right, let's try and find a guy who's cookie cutter, who sounds just like John Frusciante, and let's try and do those songs more. Yeah, just trying to play the albums yeah. to, for like a long tour to get the paycheck and yeah. stuff. Like, they're still trying to push the creative envelope by writing stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, they're, and they've always been a band that's changed 
some element you know on any given album they have just stuff that you hear before and it's like they have a they have, no longer they have a good balance album. they have a, like they have a, a constant state of uh pushing pushing their limits i think musically which is nice yeah i remember talking to one of my old coworkers. um he said that he was in michigan in ann arbor and this was the lineup that he saw this was probably i think 91 maybe maybe even earlier than that he saw pearl jam Actually, let me go with this. He saw the Red Hot, or he saw Smashing Pumpkins okay. in a club in Ann Arbor. Smashing Pumpkins opened up for Red Hot Chili Peppers, and this other t- band that was just releasing their album called Ten this <laughs> next week, touring under Mookie Blaylock, but was Pearl yeah, Jam. Yeah. So in a club for like 200 people, he saw Pearl Jam, wow. Smashing Pumpkins, and Red Hot Chili Peppers on the same bill. I mean, those are three, like for me, those are three of the greatest bands. Well, yeah, you're time. talking about three bands. I mean, Smashing Pumpkins probably wouldn't do it anymore, but you could go to Wrigley Field and see Red Hot Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right now, like, they would... If they sell said, out. Their sell own out, nights. Yeah, multiple nights, absolutely. I mean, I would still love to see... I mean, I'm still upset that we didn't see Smashing Pumpkins when we were in Vegas a couple of years ago, but, uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah. Got to babysit sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes like that. Like, so I know that you came a lot of rock and stuff like that. My background, like, in terms of, like, musical styles, for me, was heavily derived from, like, blues. And blues guitarists, mm-hmm. like, definitely had a very strong, like, British... Like, this... I'm A lot of the stuff my dad had on CDs that he recorded to tapes, and we took on road trips and stuff. Like, I listened to the Yardbirds a lot. Listened to Cream. Listened to the Beatles. Listened to the Rolling Stones. Like, a lot of that blues then took me into like some of the American blues, like some more like the BB Kings and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And like listening to where it was Eric Clapton playing with BB King, like live stuff. And then I don't, I don't know why, but for me artistically, I've done a lot of stuff that like Motown, Sam Cooke, anything that comes out of Motown, like the Jackson five, like any of those funky bass lines is what takes and helps like, wow, if I could at least harness a little bit of this, I'll be a very, very, very happy camper. (laughs) Like, I don't know. But then I definitely feel like, I think that's a nature that's like byproduct of living and growing up in the city of Chicago. It's like, you, you know that this is a blues town like Mm -hmm. through and through. So any deviation of that, like you even see within the influences of like the smashing pumpkins, who they took and were influenced by. Like if you listen to um, smashing pumpkins, they've got a lot of influences by, uh, cheap trick, yeah, in all their tracks and stuff like that, who are all blues rock guys. So it's like, wow, this is pretty interesting. It's like, oh, makes sense why we like all these, like, these very, very strong story driven tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gets me to the point, like, we know that you're a rock guy. What are your albums? Like, list, list your top five albums. Well, like, you can start with honorable mentions yeah. first. Like, give me a list of like what you got, and I'll like, I mean, we're so where I started. Um, cause I absolutely got into blues and everything. Like I just, like I started in rock. Like that's what my, my dad and my mom listened to that got me rolling. And then obviously you intended. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then I, uh, you know, progressed into, you know, it's like, it's a constant state of exploration. So it's like, all right, well find out where these influences came from and then go back further and find out where their influences right. came from. So I got into, you know, heavily into, uh, you know, blues-based music when I was in high school. Um, as I started to pick up, you know, I, I got my first guitar when I was, I think that was for my eighth grade graduation, a, a 
powder or not powder blue but blue bc rich warlock Ooh, wow oh, yeah it was a, a bc sh- rich warlock snazzy guitar that is amazing uh, my dad got it off of one of his buddies who bought it for his kid who didn't he never touched the thing so if it was pink it would be almost better than <laughs> i don't think blue. they ever made pink it was hard enough to find blue to be honest because almost all their guitars are black yeah because um, it's a bc rich but warlock. yeah oh yeah so <laughs> i mean i had that but yeah so i i mean i got more into blue like i was huge into clapton and cream when i was when i was in high school and obviously that led into other stuff but yeah um overall uh top five albums of influence not not top five albums of of mine you know, for all time, but just right. that got me into wanting to play music, wanting to pick up a guitar, wanting to have a band, you know, that, that teenage feeling of, all right, it's time to, you know, bust something out. Get your Rick Springfield on. Um, yeah. <laughs> so number five uh, for me would be uh, Siamese Dream by Smashing Pumpkins. Classic album. Um, I mean, Chicago, being from Chicago and knowing that like, you know, oh, it was the coolest thing in the world. It's like, oh man, they're from here. You know, they're the local act, you know, they're a big deal. Uh, but I mean, just the the level of proficiency that they had at a time where I think musical proficiency went downward. Yeah, and I think you had to get into Siamese Dream well after the fact of getting into the Pumpkins, though. Um, I because Siamese Dream came out what ninety one or yeah, somewhere, when did Gish come out? Um, it, I mean off the top of my head, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I'll look that up. But right. I mean, I got into Smashing Pumpkins on the radio, um, and. That was, I mean, that album just once I, I, I forgot how I got it. I think my dad might have got it from Columbia Music or something. Oh, gosh. And I had it, and I mean, it just blew my mind. So the, the arrangements and their the guitar playing, uh, just the heavily distorted like solos and everything like that. I mean, it was just in your face all the time, and uh, I, I loved it. And, yeah. And, and, but they also have great dynamics too. Like, I think that Billy Corgan, I mean, he has a very unique voice, but like, He's just such a, a a prolific like he has great use of knowing when to go loud and over the top and knowing when to dial it way back and have a very you know soft and gentle passage in in certain parts of songs or even for entire songs um, and I think that that album for me at least has the best like split of you know softer songs and more yeah. like introspective stuff and then just I mean a song like Geek USA which just is blasting it you know you got jimmy chamberlain just coming in with a heavy drum fill right at the beginning and it just in your face the whole time it's got today on it it's got yeah. their song the song mm-hmm. that launched them into like mega stardom it's got uh cheryl brock yeah on it uh, what else does it which have? is what was ripped off of uh what i can't remember which uh cheap trick track mm-hmm. but it was the chorus is the um, ooh la la part yeah. is all ripped off of them and i mean that was 93 so like that's that's early that's before mm-hmm. i got into them yeah, I mean, I didn't get into them in 1993. I was six, but right. I mean, I had, <laughs> you know, probably, uh, you know, I was probably I'd say about age 11 or so. Yeah, was when I got, and I mean, that album stayed in my my CD case, and it was, geez, I mean, it was in my uh, my Walkman for God, I mean, almost probably six six seven months between my junior and senior year of uh, high school. Like, yeah. I just it was just on repeat all the time. I mean, it was a great album. Like Billy Corgan, I think spoke to a lot of people like the angry kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's no reason we were really angry, but it was just like, oh, this is cool. It's melodic. I think that's what it gave us like a, like when we first got our first guitars, it gave us something to take and try to learn to play. That mm-hmm. was very difficult, but it was attainable. Like yeah. Because 
like if you learn the story, like f- through years after the fact, I've learned through like Billy Corgan's like stories and documentaries around that. It's like everybody's self-taught, like all these things. Like a lot of people don't go to music theory side. Mm-hmm. And so like to hear like and see these tracks are being written by people who are just like us that just picked up a guitar one day and decided, hey, I'm going to do it. Um, I think that was exciting for me, like especially with that time. And Q101 did a great job. I oh, mean, yeah. XRT did a great job too. Like the Chicago radio knew that this was like, we're going to help this band take a break yeah. from here. And they were worldwide sensations. So my buddy, uh, Frank, uh, his uncle uh, plays in a band here in Chicago. Um, I don't know what to, to what degree of success they've had. I mean, they're, they're just a local you know band, but they're all older dudes. Um, so they're, you know, they're playing the, you know, the standard rock songs and everything like that. They got on a show before the pumpkins got big with, and they could not stand <laughs> uh, Corgan, like, and, and the rest of the people in the band. Like, he's like, they can't even tune their instruments, blah, blah, like, just that, like, very much, you know, like, serious, like, old school mentality. Of, I mean, because, like, those guys were, you know, guys who it's like, all right, you go take your guitar lessons and you go, and, and that was the sure. way you learn. And, you know, you do everything perfectly musically you know you know what key you're playing in and you're gonna just you're gonna follow the progressions and everything like that and versus playing by feel versus just going in and being i mean and plus i mean they're you know a very different band uh, very different different look sound feel than what a lot of people were used to and at that time house band at the metro for the longest time um so that's like my he's like they could he's like my buddy frankly just be like oh man my uncle absolutely hates Smashing Pumpkins. Can't stand them. Played a show with them. Said they were just terrible. And it's like, and then they went on and made millions upon millions of dollars. Yeah, how does that hate work <laughs> right now? Oh, that's crazy. Okay, so Siamese Dream. What's number yeah. four? Uh, so we're going to number four. Uh, going back to our Metallica conversation, Master of Puppets. Okay, uh, that's easy. Hearing how you like that song. Yeah, my dad was really big into Metallica uh, when I was a kid, and I got that. Uh, well, I think back in the day, Chicago had a, like a more metal station. I think it was 103.5, something like that. It had Man Cow on, and that was where I started hearing Metallica for the first time. And Well, Man Cow was Q101 for a long he time. He was, but this was before like Q101 got big. Okay. Um, and so I had to be real young. Because Q101 was like straight alternative. Yeah. It was Smashing Pumpkins, Pearl Jam. It was the grunge scene. It was Breaking Radiohead. Yeah. It was like... Pearl Jam coming out of there even further. Um, there, Yeah, there was a... I'm trying to think now what on the dial it was. I can remember there was Kiss and then there was B96, which was all the top 40 stuff. But. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't remember what exact station, what it was even called, but I'm pretty sure Mankow was on it. And, uh, yeah, so we listened to that a lot. That's how I got into Metallica. Yeah, I mean, that album is just brilliant. I mean, it's a great place to get into it. Like, um, Sanitarium on there is an amazing track. Mm-hmm battery like it's a great album like it's again to your point it's like it's operatic yes it's and the the rock opera before it's the rock opera. and the lyrics are so heavy in that like the the themes and and everything are so i mean like disposable heroes is just a a, just absolutely like horribly depressing song about you know going you know just being thrust into war and just being you know a useless you know you know, you basically, we're just going to throw you at the front lines and you're going to get mowed down and, you know, you're going to get hurt. And then, oh, we'll send you right back out, you yeah. know. Um, and I, I mean, it's just a, a brutal, brutal song. I, I absolutely love it. 
um, Leper Messiah. I mean, just the all the all the songs on the album. I can I can listen to that album any day of the week and just and immensely enjoy it front to back. Yeah, and I mean, if you're trying to learn how to play music and play guitar, that's an album that's going to take and challenge you with just like sheer speed. Oh god, I still like can't. playing sixty fourth <laughs> notes and I all that on it. Master I, I, Puppets. I, I love it, but I can't play dum, it. I'm too slow. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be I, I I'd be lucky. I can get in a little sanitarium, but that's significantly slower. Yeah, it's a lot of finger picking <laughs> um, right but, there. But uh, yeah, I mean the uh, that that style of music which I adore is not uh, necessarily the music that I can play. Well, and that to me is like it just shows that they're it's classical pieces. You remember the S and M album? I think it mm-hmm. was where yeah they do the, the San Francisco uh, orchestra. I think. Yeah, that was a great album. But it was like the, some of the best tracks on there were all off of Master. Mm-hmm. Like it was because. Oh, it's in the movement. It's a seven-minute track that yep. just has multiple movements in it. So, yeah, that's number number four for me. Number four. Okay, yeah. take us to three. Three, um, which I guess I I don't want to consider as a cop out, but it's a greatest hits album. Um, but I it, have one on my list that's a greatest. It's hits. a uh, it it meant a lot to me uh, as I started to kind of change over um, into like some different styles of music. Uh, it's Neil Young's greatest hits. Yeah. Album. And for me, Neil Young is like got everything I want in music because he he spans genres so flawlessly. Like he can go and play. I mean, like a lot of people consider him to be the godfather of grunge. Uh, I mean, just raunch. He can go from a raunchy, over the top, um, you know, song like "Rockin' in the Free World." Um, he's got all of his stuff with Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, which are just brilliant songs. Uh, then he goes into folk. He can go into you know almost you know what a lot of people would consider country. And but he can go on one album and go and have a song, and then bounce into the next one just so flawlessly. Yeah, for me, you just put him with a guitar and a harmonica and have him belt out "Harvest Moon" mm-hmm. just in a solo acoustic setting, and that's just like capturing lightning in a bottle. That is probably one of my favorite. Like Neil Young is definitely a big influence for me too. Just because of like like what you said, he did it his way. Mm-hmm. Like he went in and just started recording and has all these like multiple facets. It just shows like self taught. Yeah, and I love his I love his guitar tones and I I absolutely adore his like phrasing on like I love how angular his guitar solos are and his guitar work. It like I pattern like a lot of my play because I'm not hyper proficient or anything like that. Like I play, you know, I'm, you know, self-taught and I just, you know, muddy my way through songs like his phrasing and everything just kind of like it just complements everything because you hear you can have this nice like, you know, very simple chord progression and then you just hear this guitar solo come out of left field where it's just, you know, overdriven like crazy and just, uh, you know, completely going on a different path than what the rest of the song is doing, but it still works. Like yeah. that's like, that's the, how good he is. Um, you know, and, and he's, he's really hasn't lost it, which is a, you know, for a dude who's been around the business for that long, like God, I mean, he has how so many, many albums, like 40 at least, maybe almost 50 years. Yeah, I mean, he's, at I think least. he's 70 or 71 now. And he's been, I mean, since the sixties with Buffalo Springfield. So, yeah. And I mean, he's launched like with, the grunge stuff, like mm-hmm. Pearl Jam, used to play with them. Oh yeah, and, and they, I mean, they still play "Fucking Up" school, as one yeah, of their like, as one of their staples of their live show for Pearl Jam. Yeah, I mean, it's like just seeing that too. It's like it's amazing to see how these bands that we take for granted as like good in their own right for being um, amazing, amazing grunge bands, but they all have an influence. Mm-hmm. They all have somebody that they've tied their, you know, tied their wagon to, who's helped them get through and helped help them take through the creativity process to the next level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Neil Young is definitely an iconic 
I'm glad his music's back on Spotify. That's great. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily agree with some of his uh, standpoints on music production and you know the crazy uh, what's his whatever his MP or not MP3 is uncompressed audio is stereo sure. stuff, but. Yeah, I don't. Not a big music is back to the world, but yeah. support your musicians. Support, buy their albums. Yeah, I mean, go to but, their tracks. But I'll, I'll like as soon as he, you know, he just put out a new album. Like I listen to it front as soon and back. As he puts those tickets on. Is, uh, oh sale. yeah, they'll be they'll be bought, and I'll go see them. Okay. He used to I mean, he used to have a ranch like twenty five thirty minutes from where I live now. Uh, but I think he's either sold it or just doesn't go there anymore. Right. But it's like Neil, I want to party with I you. I want to party with you. Neil yeah. Diamond. Get Neil Diamond and Neil Young together. Ooh. <laughs> Diamonds are forever tour, <laughs> something like that. Okay, so number two, number two, and fittingly, uh, would be Led Zeppelin two. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, uh, that is my, and a lot of people are gonna say Led Zeppelin four, um, but don't judge. I'm not. No, there's no judgment. I love Led Zeppelin four, um, but when I uh, first heard Led Zeppelin two, which I was as we were talking beforehand. Um, about, I, I mean, I think I got this. I think I paid nine dollars for it at Sam Goody, um, and it was it, it blew my mind. I mean, it was my first major introduction to Led Zeppelin, and uh, yeah, I mean, I I think it's I mean, and a lot of the songs are not originals, like they they're reworked blues classics, which I mean, okay, that's that is what it is, but uh, they're just I mean, the perfect i think that album's the perfect fusion of like blues and rock and roll right like and they, they think it's um you know certainly uh stands the test of time to this day like you could you can put that on front to back and i won't won't even skip a track exactly yeah. um so yeah i mean it's a i and especially like the very end track with bring on home uh just i love that riff and it's not even one of the feature i don't even think it's one of the featured tracks on it but yeah it's just got a like a early blues like intro just a little shuffle and then it busts into this huge jimmy page lick and i love it led zeppelin is a great band just because they were the ones who modernized blues rock Mm -hmm. they're the ones like you can look through anybody yeah again you can go through the beatles the who rolling stones a lot of these different things that go through rock but led zeppelin was like i think one of the first people that i could truly say was like okay they're taking these standards they're taking and doing it there. Rolling Stones did that a lot too. But Led Zeppelin didn't do it with critical acclaim. They just did it. They just toured incessantly and they were just amazing musicians. All four of them. Like were just oh, amazing yeah. at their craft. Like the Robert Plant's vocals, I mean, they're just absolutely amazing. Like I, I definitely have a Led Zeppelin album on my top 10 oh yeah i mean i think top five be remiss uh to not to over overlap them yeah i'd say the only song i don't like on this album and it's their like i hear it on the radio every now and again thank you i i can't get into that it's like a poppy ballad song and i mean it's still got some it's got decent elements to it but it's like i i just don't like it which track uh it's the fourth track on the on the album it's right after the lemon song okay um and it's just uh you know just a goofy like ballad and i don't think it's very good but and then it, it busts into heartbreaker right after that right so and then so and then heartbreaker goes into live and love and made and then it goes into ramble on and then it goes into moby dick and then you get bring it on home to finish it out yeah so it's um, kind of like a b-side of uh abbey road you know yeah, you get and, a long um you just get track after track after yeah. track that just not necessarily runs into each other as like it's like abbey road was designed to obviously be you right. play the b-side you just chill 
um, but like you get track that you don't want to ever turn off and mm-hmm. go to. That's yeah. sweet. And then, I mean, you get before you get to bring it on home, you get a, yeah. And I think on the the album version, the drum solo for Moby Dick's only like eight minutes long, but oh, then you see the, you see the live version. He's playing for 25, 30 minutes. Gosh, <laughs> John Bonham. Great. Great. Okay. So we're at the top. Do you want to give your honorable mentions first or do you want to take uh, in? Yeah. Like- so honorable mentions, uh, I went with uh, 2112 by Rush. Uh, that's a first time I heard Overture and then Temples of Syrinx and everything like that. I nerded out and uh, I've, my dad was a huge Rush fan uh, growing up. So I, I got that and I, you know, it, it took me a long time to like understand. It's like, okay, this is, this is only three people. <laughs> like what the hell is going on in this? It sounds album? like four at least. Yeah. Five. And uh, so, I mean that, that whole, and people, you know, people recognize that song. Um, but then you go to like the, after that, that whole piece on the front side of the album, you get the B side and the B side's still really good. Yeah. Like, uh, passage to Bangkok is great. And, uh, you know, so like that whole, um, but yeah, I mean, obviously that album is known for the, the 2112 epic. For the kids who don't know what a B side is, a B side (laughs) is the other side when you flip the record over (laughs) and you get them bonus tracks. I think that passage to Bangkok is on the B side. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but, uh, regardless, it's like, it's fact check. No. And 2112, I mean, you was, you pick up that album to listen to that. I mean, that's what you're, what you're digging in for. Okay. Um, and then, uh, the other, the other honorable mention would be paranoid by black Sabbath. Okay. Um, Yeah. I I loved Ozzy when I was, uh, I mean, that was when the Osbournes were huge, like, um, and you know, you had everything kind of front and center with his musical career. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was, that album is, I actually like the bass lines more than I like most of the guitar lines on that. I mean, I think Geezer Butler just is a monster on the bass. So, um, yeah, so that's the honorable mentions and then we'll go into number one. Okay. Number one, number one, uh, drum roll, please. But, uh, the, uh, that'd be a huge Nirvana fan. So it's never mind. Okay. Uh, That's a good track. That's a good album. (laughs) You can't, uh, which one do you take all of them? Yeah. I mean, I was a gargantuan Nirvana nerd in uh, middle school and high school. Uh, I just, I had every, every album, Bunch of bootlegs, you know the DV, and well, the, I actually had the VHS of Live Tonight sold out, sure, uh, because they hadn't put it on DVD yet. Um, I had the box set, you know, that was a huge. I think I was a junior in high school, and they put the box set out with like a bunch of previously unreleased stuff and all like B sides and random recordings, and I, yeah, got that for Christmas one year, and I think I listened to it for that like that afternoon all day and just went through the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, never mind is the the crux of it. I mean, you is it safe to say that there's no one favorite track on Nevermind, or is it just kind of like they all have their own right that you can't justify putting them together as one as being the best track? So when I would I would say getting into it, like you know, if I was to reverse 15 years and go back to it, I would say probably In Bloom and Smells Like Teen Spirit would have right. been like my number ones. But actually, like going forth now. Um, my two favorite songs on that are Breed and Territorial Pissings. Okay. Um, and Breed is just a masterpiece, I think, lyrically. And uh, I love the I love Dave Grohl's drumming on it. And then uh, Territorial Pissings is just like very throwback to like their punk roots. Yeah. Um, and the, like the guitar tone in it is so raunchy because they just plugged straight into the board. And then you have Kurt Cobain losing his voice at the end of it. And it's just... and. Chris Novoselic just, uh, I forgot the song. Like, Come on, 
people now. Hmm? Smile on your brother. <laughs> right at the beginning of it. And uh, I forgot, I, I don't know why I'm that the name of that band is escaping me, but regardless. It's, oh, God. Uh, but It's uh, Woodstock. I can't remember right now. Like we're bad music. Yeah, right? whatever. It doesn't matter. It's it's hilarious. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that that album is far and away the most influential. I can still play almost all of it. I think on on guitar. Nice. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to it front to back. Actually, my girlfriend hadn't heard it. This was maybe a year and a half ago. She'd never listened to it through to through. And I was like, oh well, we're doing this now because it's happening. You've got to know what. <laughs> why I do all the things that I do on the guitar and it sounds annoying at times and things like that. But, but this like, is like, that was a quintessential album because it spoke like it wasn't perfect and it was meant to not be perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, they went way further away when they went to in utero. Um, I mean, they tried to make an album that wasn't going to get airplay, um, but they were such good songwriters. I mean, that, Kurt Cobain was such a great songwriter. And I mean, they, that was that album. They actually had more influence from the rest of the band on some of the songs. Like, mm-hmm. the, like uh, Dave Grohl wrote a couple of the riffs and things. Um, but I mean, that's, they were just, they were talented. So it was going to get played no matter what. And they yeah. were so big, but uh, yeah, I mean, that album is my, one of my favorites of all time. Yeah. I, I'm looking at my tracks and my albums right here. And I, you said Dave Grohl and I don't even have any Foo Fighters on here. I don't either. Be, and there's another band that I, I, didn't get into Foo Fighters until I was in high school. Yeah, um, but Foo Fighters is my favorite band of all time right now. Yeah. Like, just what they've done, like as a career now, it's like they've been amazing. Oh so, yeah, I I mean we saw Foo Fighters at Wrigley Field, and that that was the best concert I've ever been to. Yeah, it was an amazing concert. Sorry if you didn't get tickets for that. It sucks to be you. <laughs> um, that's crazy. Yeah, I think I have gosh my five top five and some honorable mentions here. They're interesting. Um. For my for my fifth album, it definitely goes back to being a huge like the British uh, rock and roll style mm-hmm. of things. Like for me, I was a huge Eric Clapton fan, and I had listened to Cream. Like so, the way that I got into Eric Clapton was my dad would take in had Yardbirds CDs, and he would take in had that Yardbird CD, burned it or ripped it, put it on a tape for road trips. We also had um, Cream. Israeli years. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that was on a tape. And we'd listen to this, like driving down to Tennessee or d- other places. And they'd be on repeat and just like Eric Clapton. So I'd hear all these Eric Clapton tunes as a kid, like really young age, like all these different, like the the hard rock stuff. And it wasn't, I'd heard Layla, Derek and the Dominoes. I'd heard Blind Faith. There was a bunch mm-hmm. of different things that we've listened to. But it wasn't until I heard the Unplugged album that I really knew that I wanted to play music in terms of that because he took. For me, I probably first heard it when I was 10. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the musical discovery, I was like right around the 10 years old. Um, with that album, I heard that you could take these really, really, really rock tunes and take them, make them simpler mm-hmm. by stripping down a lot of the album, like a lot of the other guitars and other things, right. and take and have these very, very powerful acoustic songs. Um, Layla Acoustic was one of the things, Tears in Heaven on there. Um, Growing up was a huge track for me just to listen to for mm-hmm. different things, different purposes. Um, but every al- track on there was amazing in there. And it didn't come out until later on another album, but Change the World by Eric Clapton, another acoustic stuff. So I think I hold a lot more of the weight in terms of his body of work from his acoustic stuff than I do from also his like awesome blues guitar yeah. stuff. Like the 24, is it the 24 Nights stuff? Where he was at Royal Albert Hall, like old love on that track mm-hmm. is amazing. On that album is absolutely amazing. So like, uh, unplugged Eric Clapton has got to be like the fifth 
on my list. Okay, that's very respectable. Yeah. I, I mean, but my mom loved Eric Clapton when I was, I mean, I can remember, I forgot what album it was, but she had it on tape. And uh, I mean, it was on the boom box yep. on fairly regular rotation. So yeah, it's a, that's a very respectable. Yeah. I think in the Ferrar household, we went through multiple tapes and multiple CDs, yeah. like because they either got given away to people or we listened to them and give them away or we, my, we, me and my brother would steal it from my dad. So we'd get it a <laughs> couple of times. Um, but that was like, that was a huge album for me. Number four on my list. I'm going to take and pull one of yours. I did take a greatest hits, but it's also another one that's, it's because of the band it, and the artist. It was Tom Petty's greatest hits album. Oh yeah, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Like that, starting with American Girl and ending up with like, you know, Mary Jane's Last Dance was the first chime that was on there. Mm-hmm. Like I got into that. I got into Tom Petty again on the whole road trip stuff because my dad would just put these tapes on and we'd listen to him for hours. Well, it's and hours. amazing. Like Tom Petty's great road trip music. It's great so. road trip music and it's great just music in general. Now that I'm like not road tripping. Yeah. Like just, I, I recently, this was maybe six months ago, I had to go down to uh, Southern California, run, I had to go pick up beer from a brewery and a bunch of other stuff. So I went down on a Friday night, and then on Saturday I was driving back up, and I had all day because Jackie, my girlfriend, was out of town, and I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to cruise and listen to some tunes, and like I'm going to head up the one and you know drive all through Big Sur and stuff. And I just was like, oh, what, like, what music do I want? And it's like, it was beautiful outside. I was like, all right, it's Tom Petty. Like, and I played probably 40 different Tom Petty tracks like the whole drive up. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, it is like, if you're trying to play guitar, listen to that album, buy that album, get it. Um, it'll take and show you how to take and write songs that will live the test of time. But it's like, they run into each other perfectly. There mm-hmm. no track sounds the same and they're all to take a borrow something from the hip hop genre. They're all bangers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for me, it wasn't, um, it was like, yeah, I could listen to it and it's like, you're taken to that like road trip vibe. But for me, it was Mike Campbell solo on refugee. Like that was what took me. And it's like, wow, I need to take and learn how to play this guitar better. Mm-hmm. Like, Refugee, and then I went and found Dan the Torpedoes on vinyl, like many years later. But then I sought out Dan the Torpedoes and all this, and it's like, oh my god, this guy is awesome. His band is even better than he is, and I need to see these guys live. (laughs) I need to be Tom Petty. I need to embrace it. And like, I'm so stoked that I finally got tickets to go see him this year, which is going to be amazing. Um, But yeah, that album was huge for me. And one of the first songs that I always play when I'm just warming up every day is uh, Mary J's Last Dance. Mm-hmm. Like, just the, the A, G, D. Yep, a very like, sparse. Like, like that album they did, on, they stripped everything down so well. And, like, I mean, the that chord progression plus the harmonica is just yeah fantastic. It's And it's a great track. I mean, that was a new track for that album. It was great. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it was huge fan. Huge fan, Tom. Love your stuff. Keep doing it. Okay, so number three on my list, it goes back to our Chicago roots here. You know, you said it was Siamese Dream. I have to say it was Melancholy. Obviously, as I alluded to before, um, when I was building my 3D puzzle of the (laughs) Capitol building, Infinite Sadness was on repeat. It wasn't just because it was a double disc. Like, it was, you had these, like, orchestral songs mixed in with really, really hard rock grungy songs. Like, you had 1979 on the B-side, or on the second disc, you had Bullet Over Bullet, Bullet Over Butterfly Wings on the first. Like, you had these, like, very, very hard tracks with these 
new sounds that I never knew of. And, and to be honest, they were being played on Q101. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Like every single day, five minutes. Oh, we're going to play another one. We're going to yeah. play another one. <laughs> so that kind of helped there. But it's like that was the album that got me into it um, and into Chicago music and into like local rock, which it t- it didn't take me to a lot. It took me a few more years after that to start to get into Gish and Siamese Dream. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the Rotten, was it the Rotten? Oh, movies? yeah. Like they're, they're, what that came out. Was that did that include like um, what was their one of their last albums? Um, uh, was it? Um, it wasn't Sheena, the, the. I don't think it was that one. Yeah. I think it was the one. It was like Pisces. Okay, would have been I think the one that was on there before. I could okay. be wrong though. Yeah. But it was like that was the greatest hits and had landslide. I was huge. I listened to a, again road trip music, Fleetwood Mac, all the time. So I was like, landslide. Let's listen to this whole thing. Oh, let's go back and listen to it. And then you realize that the singles they put out were amazing, but it's all also the tracks that didn't get released as singles that are amazing. Mayonnaise. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's one of my favorite songs. It's a great song. Like, so yeah, huge Smashing Pumpkins fan, but like Melancholy was what got me into the band. I had never listened to them prior to that. And it was like, okay, this is, this is what it is. Number two on my list happens to be number four by the greatest band. Well, one of the greatest bands of Led Zeppelin. Like I have to say Led Zeppelin four is by far one of my favorites because it's not like, okay, you're going to take this. It's got black dog. It's got rock and roll. It's got this. It's not those. It's the final track of the whole thing. Oh yeah. It's when the levy breaks. It's when I first heard that, I was like, damn, I need to be a drummer. Oh, that's like the heavy, like hip hop beat that like has been used for decades in rap and hip hop music. Like that just that slow intro and just, yeah. I mean, that's a, raunchy blues like just perfect song yeah i mean we were talking about wayne's world and stuff and it's like they make the joke of no stairway to heaven mm-hmm. it's like it's not that for me that's <laughs> led zeppelin 4 is john bonham just going fucking ape shit pardon the language uh just going crazy on those drums and watching the document documentaries like after the fact they're in this big mansion this huge house and they were in the foyer and it was just this huge shaft yeah and you just get that echo and you get that reverb from the ambiance of the room. That was just amazing. That right there was the one album. Like I got that when I was probably, again, stole my dad's records like most people do. Um, I hadn't gotten a guitar yet. I was probably nine years old listening to this. And it was like, okay, Stairway to Heaven. Everybody hears Stairway to Heaven. Everybody oh, yeah. hears Stairway to Heaven. And then it's like, my dad, I was like, dad, this is a good song. He's like, yeah, but try to get down to the last parts of it. I'm like why? He's like, just trust me. Just get down to the mm-hmm. last tracks. Like get, if you can make it and like when we have we're when we're younger and we're trying to discover unless you're really motivated to listen it's hard to take and listen to tracks like a full album right that's not the hits because you're right you know you hear the radio play and like that's what you want to listen to yeah but it, i first got down there i'm like dad i got down there he's like what'd you think i'm like best thing i've heard <laughs> ever i'm like you gonna buy me drums he's like no no <laughs> like darn it can I, I play, can I play the trumpet no I got, and like, I always fancy myself like a drummer. I'm not a drummer. I'm, I, I, the problem is the, the hands and the feet thing. Like, I like I, to play. Yeah. I can coordinate one, but it, it's very difficult for me to coordinate. It's both. very difficult to play. Yeah. You know? And so I was in fourth or fifth grade, and they were just starting a band in our elementary school. And you like, it was like, hey, open tryouts, find out what you're good at. Right. And I was like, well, shit, I want to play drums. Like, and the guy was like, all right, play this rhythm. Like, I never picked up drumsticks or anything like that. I was you know, 10, not less. I was probably I was nine going on 10, probably. Right. And 
Like, he's like, oh, no, you can't play drums. I was like, all right, like, why? He's like, no, you just can't. And, like, never got to pursue it beyond that. It's like, because you would be too good. Yeah, right? And, you would have been Buddy Rich. Like, he wouldn't let me play anything else either. So either I really just sucked at everything, or he was just a jackass. I don't know which. I'm, I mean, I'm not a heavily proficient musician. I get, you know, I muddy my way through things just as much as, uh, you know, you know my, any piece that I can play flawlessly, I, I can easily just screw up just as badly. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's always bent me out. So, like, we play rock band or, or guitar hero with the drums. I'm on the drums. I am doing this. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. Drums, like, I don't know. John Bonham, I wish he would have been able to be around longer to put more albums out. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, Led Zeppelin's doing a lot with Jason and doing a bunch of yeah. stuff, like trying to take and make like the remaining members take and do stuff. But it would have been nice to see that, like that the original lineup at one point in time tour. Yeah, like um, if you were lucky enough m- to see that. My dad had tickets to see them in Chicago. Um, it was the tour, so it was literally Bonham died, and they canceled the tour, yeah. and that was it. I mean, it's like I'm glad that they didn't continue necessarily, like without Bonham, because right. I mean, it was such a big part of their sound. But yeah, I yeah. mean, he's the heart, yeah, the heart and soul of that. So yeah, I mean, there's you can't be like, oh no, that's wrong to Led Zeppelin four. I mean, it's probably one of the best albums ever made. Yeah, um, and so it's like, I mean, it, it was just a matter of. I think like the difference between like me getting into Led Zeppelin through Led Zeppelin two, um, I I probably just caught more songs off Led Zeppelin two earlier, yeah. you know, and then uh, you know, I had a whole lot of love like the intro to that just like that hooked me instantly that album. Yeah, for me, I got like I think it was the BBC sessions uh, that they had done. Mm-hmm. Like there was the white cover, like hand yeah, yeah, drawn yeah, photos yeah. of them on there. Like, that's what got me in there, and I was like, okay, I hear a lot of these different things, and then it was. I liked Stairway, so I went into four. My dad's like, get down to the bottom, get down, and then you're gonna find out that this is what this is why this is the greatest band, like one of the greatest bands of all time. And so that's just how I got into yeah. it too. And because like honestly, like my favorite Led Zeppelin song is not on one, two, three, four. It's a, Over the Hills and Far Away is yeah. my, oh, my favorite one Zeppelin of the song. one of the best my songs favorite song in in the world. One of the best songs to play. One of my favorite songs too. And then ten years gone. Like that's not even that's, that's not even until like what is that physical graffiti? Mm-hmm. I love Ulysses Last Stand. Yeah. yeah. So like, and to think about that, that's five six albums deep mm-hmm. at least. Like the band is amazing. So, yeah, I think we're up to my honorable mentions and honorable mentions. Yeah, honorable mentions. Uh I'll go this way first. I'll do like again the British invasion stuff. Not the Beatles. Not everything else. But there's a huge British influence into what I listened to, and it was like. It was 94, I believe, Again, Sony BMG uh, Music Club oh, yeah. or whatever it was. <laughs> um, I had no idea. I heard it on the radio, Q101, um, but I didn't know much of like all the tracks. I didn't know the references on the album art like until I was much, much older. I'm like, <laughs> realized I probably shouldn't be taking this album to school because of like the cocaine photo on the back and all <laughs> that. But one of the biggest albums is oasis oh, what's yeah. the story of morning glory like that obviously was one of their biggest albums of you know but wonderwall happened to be like i love Britpop. i oh, love it i think it was great yeah i mean it hit the sweet spot too like right in that age like i didn't get into oasis as much as i am now uh i liked them back growing up in that time period where they got big right um, but it wasn't like i mean right now you know you could throw on oasis and i'll just be fit to be tied 
Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it, that's a wonderful album. Yeah. For me, it was like, I got hooked in both Wonderwall. It's just a great song. I think the, just the lyrics were amazing. Just of the whole album. I, I probably listened to Wonderwall in the first five years that I had that album, like 98% of mm-hmm. the time. And then the other was Champagne Supernova. Oh, I love Champagne Supernova. Yeah. It wasn't until the longer, like it wasn't until much, much later, maybe high school, um, that I started to get into more of the other stuff. And I think she's electrics on that mm-hmm. album. Um, and then don't look back in anger, like just the number of chords, the progression there and how smooth that song is. And then nowadays I just listen to it just yeah. almost weekly. <laughs> and it's fascinating too. Like, I think to appreciate it further, it's like you real, you find out like, you know, yeah, you listened to it back then and it was influential. And then you find out like literally how much they hated each other. How much like the hate brothers each other. hated each other. How much, I mean, the, the drug issues and part, I mean, you have heckling each other when one walked off the stage yep. and like, I mean, just absolute insanity that they had and like to produce like some absolutely beautiful music. And for me, it wasn't just like when I got into it in like the nineties. Yeah. It was just like, Oh, this is a cool guitar song. But now as I'm rediscovering some of these albums right now, it's not that it's a new guitar sound. It's, the way that the production is mm-hmm. working. If you listen to the tracks, it's so unique. Like each track sounds individual, like the tracking inside the guitars, the drums, everything inside the production side of things is intriguing to me as I try to produce music. Sure. Like it's like, it's giving me like, Oh, this is how you do this. You, this is how you take and overdub this or mm-hmm. this and do these certain techniques on there. It's just amazing. Like, so I find myself as that being like a, a, a reinforcement right now. And like the other honorable mention that I have is one of the, the best albums. It's great because it was the first album that I had that was gold. It was 1994. So the first album I owned was Dookie. Oh, Green yeah. Day. Like <laughs> everybody had that. But yeah. like it was, you know, you listen to Basket Case and you wanted to be angsty in your airwalks and your vans and try to do that. But <laughs> like that's what everybody got into. But then you start to listen to When I Come Around and all the other tracks and you realize, okay, as you get older and older, this is punk and it's, you know, it's not as punky as Green Day had been prior to it. Right. And it's, it's never going to be Sex Pistols punky, but it's still. Right. It's still going to be more commercialized. But then you start to put it on one and listen through the end of the album. And it's like, wow, these guys are pretty smart at what they're doing. And I think that was probably, you know, I listened to Nimrod a little bit. And what was the one that had brain stew on it? Oh, it was I like know. red I, or something. Yeah, like. I don't remember. Well, Godzilla soundtrack. And then you had the Godzilla soundtrack <laughs> with it. But it's like right after those things, it's like when, yeah, everybody bought American Idiot and listened to it. But that was like, for me, the best work that Green Day did was prior to that. Yeah, I, I agree with In that. In that three album Dookie to Nimrod phase. I, I appreciate that they like expanded their, they definitely expanded musically um, with American Idiot and that, and some of their subsequent albums. Um, I think they've shown better chops as far as like songwriting and, and musicianship. But yeah, I mean, their songs were better back you know, back for it. But again, like I say, I'm not going to knock them for going in slightly different directions or, or tr- you know, training. They, like they brought another guitar in for American Idiot. They've, I think they've continued to incorporate another guitarist in most of their albums going forward. Yeah, have a great... I mean, they're expanding what they want to do creatively. And mm-hmm. You can't knock them. But no, like From a, like a straight like influence standpoint, that was like, whoa. I remember we were playing Green Day, seventh grade uh, talent show. When I Come Around was the <laughs> song we were trying to learn to play. I think it was that and then 311, but uh, I oh digress. Oh, God, 311. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Amber? So down. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Amber's a good one. I think that was a little later. Yeah, it probably was. Yeah, but like, okay, 
now we're at the top one yeah. for me. And it's um God, it has to be you'd say it's pretty cliche, but I've always been a grunge guy. I got to see these guys for the first time this past year at Wrigley Field and they played a set. Their show, they played two nights, and each night I think they started at seven thirty and they got kicked off when the lights got turned on. Mm-hmm. So like eleven o'clock, eleven fifteen, and it was Pearl Jam. And the album was obviously ten. Like even flow and alive. Oh yeah. Like come on. Alive is one of my favorite guitar solos of all time. Yeah. I mean, and I love like they they've done brilliant work throughout their careers, but that album is you there's, there's no disputing how good that album first is. one on the Pearl Jam banner. Like they've done, like I listened to a lot of the Pearl Jam stuff when they were releasing those, like when they were releasing their bootlegs, mm-hmm. when they would have those like uh, cardboard copy boxes that you'd buy at Best Buy for like, I remember listening to the Gorge shows. Okay. When they would play and like Yellow Ledbetter would be on there and they'd play Hoodoo covers, they play everything. But then you take and go back to just that studio, uh, that studio album of 10 and it was just it was that's the one that changed for me mm-hmm. um when i was living out in the west coast i actually went to where 10 was recorded okay um i had been working with the um company that i had uh, access to one of the people who was in the fellow grammy association went to that studio and just saw that room that main studio a yeah. where this was recorded i'm like wow this was right here it was like tucked in the back of like this like uh, strip mall area like trees everywhere sure like, this album like is this is like the epicenter of like my musical thing because 10 you could argue that you know nirvana and pearl jam had their differences but Soundgarden, pearl jam yeah temple of the dog everything came from that nexus that album around there yeah. i mean temple of the dog and Soundgarden were doing their own things but then i think that explained how that that scene exploded nationally. Oh yeah. I mean, they had, there were so many parallels between some of the bands and like, you know, you could take a band that, I mean, Nirvana was certainly more punk influenced than, you know, say Pearl Jam, but there were still elements of, of both bands where he's like, you could see them crossing over very easily. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that rounds out my list. I mean, I think if I look back on these, like, what, what do we have? Each of us had seven f- top five plus some honorable mentions. Yeah. I don't think that anything like just knowing you like that anything strikes me as like, oh, this is weird or anything out of the ordinary. Like if I saw Ace of Base on there, I'd kind of <laughs> question that, but I'd secretly be saying yes. He put well, it on yeah, there and too. and and the thing of like this is influential as far as what brought me into playing. Like it's right. certainly not my top five of what I would what I would consider like my. Mount Rushmore, so to speak, of of albums, um, it would you know that that would change, but because I mean, there's a lot of stuff that on on this list, it's all stuff that was existent when you know bands that were either active at that time or getting popular at that time. Right. Whereas like now, like obviously you know years later, there's bands that I listen to far more um, and and appreciate more than some of this. I mean, not not all of it. I mean, most of it's. I mean. I'm not going to knock any of what's on my influential list, but it's like there's stuff that I'm certainly listening to more often. And, and that's, that's the beautiful thing about music is like you evolve and your, your tastes change and you still can go back and find the reasons that you loved whatever album or song it was that brought you into that you know, scene or, or that type of music. Um, but yeah, you, you, your tastes change and it's 
cool to chart that course over time and by experience and, and things that happen in your life as you get older. It's, it's a definitely an awesome experience. That's cool. Last question I have. We're going to do this in the lightning round here. Okay. What show, who do you want to see besides Neil Young? Besides Neil Young, um, let's that, that you haven't seen that I have. Yeah. That's a, that's a bigger challenge uh, that I haven't seen. Um, let's see coming up this year. Um, I was, I would like to go down and this is a little bit kind of lame sauce, but the, that big desert show that they're going to do out in, um, California, they're going to have, they, I think they already did one, but I think they're going, they're scheduling up another one, but it's got like the who and the Rolling Stones and a couple others. I've seen the Rolling Stones, but I, I want to see the Who. And I mean, I know that they're kind of a fraction of where they were, obviously right. at their peak. But it's like that's one of those bands you just check off the list and say you did it. Absolutely, yeah. For me, it's um, I'm obviously going to see Red Hot Chili Peppers for the first time this year in Chicago. I'm going to also see Tom Petty for the first time here. So I, I'm those are pretty much on the list of mm-hmm. things to do. Bands that I still really, really want to see that haven't, which might be tough, would be ACDC. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's going to be a tough one. But With the health issues and yeah. stuff like that. But that's definitely on the list for me. Yeah, that's. Uh, I bought Back in Black before my eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C. Okay. <laughs> I, awesome. I heard I heard Back in Black on the radio. Uh, my mind was blown, and I had to go to Target that day to buy a new backpack for because I it was between eighth grade and freshman year of high school. I needed a new backpack, so my mom was taking me out shopping, and it was on sale for ten bucks. So I took graduation money from eighth grade and bought that album. Oh yeah, that's awesome. Well, Steve, I want to thank you so much for being on the episode. And as a token of my appreciation, what I'd like <laughs> to do is I'd like to give my guests on this episode a little like keepsake or a memento for being on the Opinionated Stance podcast. <laughs> So hold on one second. Let me grab this. Absolutely. Um, it's a fine, uh, fine production here. Um, I'll let you describe to the, everybody else what you hear. <laughs> well, this here is a wonderful, uh, looks like a pre, uh, a, a previewed copy uh, from Blockbuster Video of uh, the fine feature film starring Sandra Bullock, Thomas Hayden Church, and Bradley Cooper, all about Steve, <laughs> which was also from the producer of Miss Congeniality some film film aficionados may know um and uh yeah it's a comedy that clings that's the tagline good work on that marketing it's a it's an amazing <laughs> thing and if you open it up you might see it's an autographed copy not by any of Ooh. the actors it's an autographed copy by me even better so um thank you so much for being on here thank you um, for having me it's been a blast um can't wait to do this again thank you for being on the show uh please follow us on facebook internet webs, whatever. I'll put the links somewhere above or below or somewhere on the website. So thank you again. Talk to you later. Bye.